Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today for the first time, you can start on day 281. 281. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you for joining the community. I do want to let you know, as well as all of our regular listeners, that we love to take time as much as we can week over week to answer questions from you, our dear listeners. And so there's three ways to send us those questions. And those questions can range from anything of maybe it's a topic we've talked about, a passage we covered, a passage we haven't covered yet, maybe a passage we covered years ago. Whatever the case is, we want to take time to answer those Bible questions. Here's the three ways to send them to us. One is an email at the address is infogrove.church. Uh, or you can direct message uh, us on the on Facebook and Instagram. Make sure to put in kind of a heading, like it's a podcast question for both email and social media. Uh, but we do have Facebook and Instagram. The Grove CH is our handle, and you'll be able to get us get us those questions there. There you go. Yeah, we actually had a listener reach out this week with some questions, and I guess they started listening. On the it, first day of the New Testament, of which the, is so rad. And then they restarted and went to the Old Testament. So they sent in a bunch of questions, uh, and we'll tackle them here in the in the, in the coming weeks. We'll yes. take a few of them. But it's funny because it's all about like, like the early Old Testament. It's like, oh, we're going back. Love it. Throwbacks. So don't feel like you have to ask it. us questions about what we're in right now. Just yeah, Bible and in the in same email, there was a, a, a great encouragement just about what the podcast has meant to him. And so we just appreciate those kind of emails as well. Uh, and... We'll get to the review stuff later on where we ask you to give a review, but it's just great to, to be a part of that community and hear from you. So thanks for sending it in. Yeah, we've talked about it before, but like we're down we're down in the basement of the church at, at a desk with two mics, so it can feel like we're talking to no one sometimes. So having people reach out uh, and saying how the podcast has been helpful for them is, is super meaningful for yep. me and Aaron, for sure. 100%. Okay, so let's jump in. We are in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34, and I, no one's going to be surprised by this. We're going to start off with some miracles that Woo. Jesus is doing because that's just... That's just what Jesus does. Just a lot, a lot of <laughs> That's teaching. That's all he does. Only miracles. A, a lot of teaching and a lot of miracles, but they're pretty cool. Uh, so I'm just going to read what happens here because it's pretty simple. Uh, As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind man came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame (laughs) through all the district. As they were going, behold, a a, a demon oppressed man came who was mute and was brought to him. Uh, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So a few things are happening here. Um, I love the have mercy on a son of David. So it's it's acknowledging Jesus's king kingly role within Israel as well. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Um, don't forget the king part. Like that is a, he is he is a fulfillment of the line of David when you get into the messianic psalms talking about essentially like just the ideal king. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. Also, if you want a good song, Son of David by Ghost Ship is really good. It's basically- it's Actually, yeah, I agree with it's, it. It's really good. It's just taking this moment and kind of making a whole song about it. So it's called Son of David. Really, really good time. Um, I also love that. And this is a theme that we're going to see. I mean, I think we've already seen it 
before as we've been reading the Gospels. But Jesus kind of in the beginning of his ministry tells people, hey, you know, keep it on the down low. We don't want word going around this. And they can't help it. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I get it. Right? I, I mean, I don't say I, I don't get it in the sense of I haven't been through this, but imagine what it would be like to be blind, to not have your sight and and to be crying out to be able to have this. And, and this is being blinded today is devastating. Um, back then, this meant there, there was no real social safety net back then. So if you were blind, you were begging on the street, you were hoping to get some food, and essentially the rest of your life was going to be spent on a mat in the city asking people for for handouts. It, 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 this would have been an absolutely devastating fate that these two men had. Um, and so to be freed from that and to be healed, I totally get how they just can't, they can't keep it quiet. And so and I, I think Jesus kind of understood when he told him that, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I feel like Jesus knows when he's telling people keep it quiet that they're not going to be able to do it. Uh, we're going to then jump over to Mark chapter six. Uh, and this is a story that's good. We're going to get a few different perspectives on it. So this is Jesus's reception in his hometown of Nazareth. So this is where Jesus grew up. Uh, so remember when he's born, he's in Bethlehem. They're there for a period of time, not more than two years, because we know that Herod uh, kills all of the under two-year-olds. So probably about a year or so. Wiseman come, they go down to Egypt. And then after Herod, the great dies, not to be confused with the Herod that we're going to be talking about later today, who is his grand? son or son. I don't remember which one he is, but anyway. If you don't know, that means I definitely don't. Oh man. Well, he's one of the Herods. They're all, they're all named Herod. It's like the French, how they can't get a king not named Louis. That's the, this point in Israel, they can't get a king not named Herod. Uh, and then after they return from Egypt, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, they live in Nazareth. So this is Jesus' hometown. Uh, so in Mark chapter six, verses two to three, it says this, and on the Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many who were with him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Uh, so what's interesting here is that Joseph isn't mentioned in Mark. And one of the notes in the ESV study Bible that I thought was really interesting is it, it could be, he was saying, does this point to the idea that Jesus may have had the stigma of um, being an illegitimate son? So do people know that Joseph is not his father? And so he kind of carries that stigma with him in the town that it, that is possible. Although we'll see in, in the Matthew passage, Joseph is actually mentioned, unlike in Mark. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be true, but it's just kind of an interesting little thing. Um, but this passage does get at this idea that and, and Jesus even says, like, prophets aren't, they aren't welcomed in their own in their own hometowns. And it is crazy to think that the places where Jesus does his most ministry are the places where it seems like the least amount of things are happening. So this is Nazareth and also Capernaum. And we'll get to Bethsaida and a few other towns in the north of the Sea of Galilee. Like in the region in which he grew up, it seems like there's not this massive amount of, and, and, and where he's doing most of his ministry, there's not this massive amount of, of, of repentance and, and accepting Christ for who he is. And, and he laments that. And, and it also just shows how the f different, pe different groups of people reject Jesus for different reasons. The Pharisees reject him because Jesus rejects their tradition and the way they interpret scripture. The Sadducees reject him because he's rocking the boat with the Romans. And then the Nazarites reject him because they grew up with him. And he's like, no, I know his dad. I know, that's Jesus. Like, what are you talking about? So it he's is nothing special. Yeah, exactly. It's really, it's really sad to think about. And it also just goes to show like that Jesus's ministry is, it's not predicated on like, 
he walked into a room and he glowed and everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is clearly the son of God. It's like, no, yep. it's, it's it's through his uh, signs and wonders and the, and the way he speaks that he's able to show people his his true identity there um, until after the resurrection, in which case Ooh. he does glow. So that's, that's, what, that's for a few weeks from now. Uh, there so, is a moment in this week's reading though where he does glow, but we'll get to that. Oh, later. are you doing the, you're doing the transfiguration? Oh, sweet. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm excited for that one. Okay, so going back I'm to- I'm just breezing by it. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, going back to Matthew chapter nine. Uh, so we're going backwards a little bit and we see Jesus heart towards his people in a beautiful way. Uh, I just love this. It says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And this is the thing that Jesus repeats a few times throughout the gospels. Essentially it's the idea that, Hey, they're ready for it. They're ready. And we need more people to be able to go out and and, and preach the, the the gospel to bring people into faith as well. Um, and I just love like sheep without a shepherd mm-hmm. is, a, is a real picture into God's heart for us where like at the, at the end of Jonah, it's, it's interesting to me that God tells Jonah it's the Ninevites and they don't know their right hand from the left. And the Ninevites were, they were wicked. They were wicked and evil people. Um, and yet, that's the way that God looks at his creation. Um, and then we see the the most powerful picture of this in, in scripture is Christ on the cross as he's looking into the eyes of people who are actively murdering him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, this is kind of a foreshadowing of that moment, but it's a reminder that God loves us and he looks at us in a way that is insanely hard to understand from a human perspective. Uh, And going back to Mark chapter six, we then see Jesus send out his disciples. So this is the 12 that he's sending out. And we're told that they proclaimed uh, that people should repent and they cast out demons and they healed many. Uh, I specify that this is the 12 he's sending out because later on he's going to send out another group as well. Uh, In Matthew 10, this gives us a few more details on this commissioning, including that the disciples are commanded to not preach among the Gentiles yet. So this is he's they're commanded to go to Jewish cities and speak to the speak to the Jews. Uh, obviously, this isn't going to be forever, as that's basically what the Book of Acts is about. But for now, True. it's going to Jesus is making clear that the message is for the Jews. It's for the nation of Israel first, and then it will go out to the Gentiles. Uh, And then he also gives a warning that if a town doesn't receive them, so in other words, if they reject one of the disciples, it will be better at the end of days for Sodom and Gomorrah. And listeners, if you're wondering, well, how's it going to be for Sodom and Gomorrah? Bad. (laughs) So very very bad was already bad. He's saying it's going to be even worse for those cities. So not good. Uh, Jesus also preps them for the persecution that they will experience, but he reminds them to have confidence in the spirit of God that is speaking through them. Uh, And then we get a few nuggets of wisdom that are, they can be a little bit hard to hear. So just a couple of highlights from his next, whose next few paragraphs of, in chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Uh, And so in other words, hey, don't fear man over God. (laughs) Like if you're having to pick one person to please, it's, it's God. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And it's a, it's a good reminder for us today. Uh, and then in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, and essentially this, the, the idea of 
our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ should be the ultimate thing in our lives. And because no one's loving your father and mother is not a bad thing. Loving your kids is not a bad thing. Um, like I, my, my kid can't even talk right now. And it's like, it's, it's funny how like, I'll just get emotional, like looking at him sometimes and it's like, Oh, I love you so much. And so, but it's remembering like, no, our relationship with God needs to be the ultimate thing. Not that it's bad to love these things, but you need to make sure you're loving them in the right, the right order, I suppose is the way to do it. Um, it reminds me, I'll do a quick little deviation, but not very long, but there's a, one of the great C.S. Lewis books is the great divorce. And in it, he's kind of imagining, um, immediate immediately after death in the afterlife and he's imagining people who are in hell being able to have the opportunity to go to heaven and so he and he's watching basically his his premise is kind of like the pe- people are in hell would still choose to be in hell because of the, because they've re- they because they reject who God is and so one of the people who rejects it is a woman who um essentially is angry at God over um the the passing of her son and she won't accept, essentially, she, she won't accept relationship with God um, because essentially she's holding on to who her son is. It was, it was a really interesting, I'm, I'm butchering it because I'm doing this all completely off of memory from a few years ago when I read the book, but read The Great Divorce. Uh, and it, it helps me put into perspective a little bit of what, uh, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10. Uh, going to Luke 9, verses 1 through 9. It's a much less detailed retelling of the commission. Uh, so this is, again, the same story of Jesus sending out his disciples. However, he does add that Herod was confused <laughs> when this is going on. So this is verses seven through nine. He says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Spoilers for what we're about to talk about. Jeez. Uh, by some <laughs> that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this? about whom about whom I hear such things and he sought to see him. So basically Herod's like he's hearing all these rumors and 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 Herod to his I shouldn't say to his credit cuz he's kind of an idiot, but I mean I, I guess a little bit to his credit. He understands who John is. Uh he understands that John is a prophet and he understands that he's a holy man as we'll talk about here in a second. Uh and so when he hears the story about basically there's another prophet going around sharing all these things, Herod is like, "Wait a second, I just beheaded the prophet. Who's this guy?" So yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, so jumping over to Mark, we get the details on that whole John the Baptist being beheaded thing that we just read about. Uh, John had been arrested for speaking out against the wickedness of Herod and Herodias's marriage. Uh, remember that Herodias or Herod, sorry, Herodia was married to Herod's brother, Philip. And we don't know exactly what went, sta- what went down, but basically Herod stole his his brother's wife. So not great. John preaches against it. They're arrested. Herodia uh holds a grudge and is a bit of a psychopath, a real Jezebel kind of character, this Herodia, not great. Uh, and so while John is in prison, Herod, like I said, recognizes that recognizes that he's a prophet and a holy man. So he protects him. He's not allowing him to be killed or anything like that. All this changes on Herod's birthday uh, due to his perversion and his wife's craziness. So his stepdaughter comes and she dances for everyone. Uh, you can read between the lines that this is probably a sensual dance that's happening. And it says that it pleased him very greatly uh, and all of his friends. And so in a drunken uh, stupor, he tells her, Hey, what what do you want from me? Even up to half my kingdom, which, you know, this doesn't go well 
Except when Xerxes does it for Esther, I guess. That's like the one time where half the kingdom's offered and it goes well. Uh, so his do- his stepdaughter goes to Herodia. She asks like, hey, what should I ask for? And Herodia's like, oh, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Because again, she's just a real freaking psycho. And so Herod obliges and he goes, he sends guards down to the jail and they behead John the Baptist and they bring his head back up on a platter. He so- obliges out of like sorrow. He's not happy about it. Yeah, yeah. Because he enjoyed conversations with John. He enjoyed the banter back and forth. And Her- and Herodias didn't like it because she got called out anyways. He is kind of an Ahab character where he's not a good man, um, but he's not as bad. He's, he basically, his, um, his deference to his wife leads to his greatest mistakes. And... Oh, he's one of, and one I, of his greats. And again, I'm I'm not saying yeah. that he's a good man by no. Any I agree with you 100. But I would say he's the one that married her too. Like, so the only difference between Ahab and Jezebel is is Jezebel was just horrid. I mean, Herodias pretty. And bad. I'm not saying she's not. I'm not saying she's an angel. Like, but I'm just saying like he Herod was just as guilty about that whole marriage as as she was. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, but he was sad about having to kill John the Baptist by beheading him. So. Yeah. It, it, well, I guess what it's I mean sad. is like the gr- perhaps the greatest sin of both Ahab and Herod is their weakness and not doing the right thing, even though they clearly know what it is. And in this case, it's Herod knows he shouldn't be killing John the Baptist, but here we are. It's true. Uh, Matthew tells the same story, but he adds the detail that after John's disciples, uh, sorry, John's disciples go and they take John's body and they bury it. Uh, we're told that in Mark. Matthew adds the detail that they go to tell Jesus what happened after all this as well. So this is how Jesus finds out. I mean, I would assume he already knew, but at least this is how Jesus is told about the death of John the Baptist is his disciples go, let him know. Uh, going back to Mark, we then get to see one of the most famous miracles of Christ, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. So, I mean, this is kind of like, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard of this one, probably. Hopefully. If not, Buckle in. It's going to be a good one. Uh, so Jesus is preaching to a crowd. He looks at the. He looks out as he's speaking to them, and we see the same. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Comparison again. That's a refrain that's repeated a few times throughout the Gospels. Uh, Jesus then tells the disciples to go get some food for the crowd, and so well, actually, they say, "Hey, we should send them into town." They can go buy some food because they're really hungry. And she's like, no, you feed them. It'll be fine. It. And it's like, no, you do it. Yeah. And so uh, they reply that this would cost around 200 denarii. That's not bad. Um, yeah. To put it into perspective, a denarii we know is about a day's wage because in the parables that Jesus talks about, he's paying people a denarii. So if we're saying the average person makes like 50, 60,000 today, that would make 200 denarii about $25,000-ish. So obviously these are ballpark numbers. Don't quote me on that. But essentially it would be a very expensive meal is the point of what they're trying to get to. Uh, Jesus is then told that they've been able to, all they've been able to scrounge is five loaves and two fish. So So, kind of close. Yeah. You know, that'll feed two guys. Uh, Probably one. Well, it's one of those things. And this was brought up to me. It's funny because like growing up in like Sunday school, you see the fish and you think of like, like a cod or something like that. But he's like, no, these are probably like anchovy sized fish is like what people would be yeah, eating. Yeah. Cause in essence, that's a sandwich. Yeah. You I'm, have the loaves, you put the bread, fish in the bread and you eat it. And so like, it's, it's the sandwich type idea. Yeah. It would, this is not as much, this, this is even less food than it sounds like. Well, I, I guess, guess it's not really a sandwich, but yeah. They're um, not big fish. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the idea. So that, that happens. Jesus prays over the meal and all of a sudden it multiplies and the disciples are able to take these five loaves and two fish and they're able to feed 5,000 people. We don't know exactly how this goes down. Uh, like it does it all multiply and the disciples are taking this massive pile of food or is it like as they're going with baskets, are they handing it out and it keeps happening? Aaron's giving me a scrunchy face. Does he give the I'm details? pretty sure that he blesses the bread, breaks it and then hands it out and disperses it as he's breaking it. As he's breaking it? Is that what we're yeah. saying? Oh, maybe I'm I just, pretty sure that's the case. Maybe I just misread it then. 
happened. But maybe I just falsely remembered childhood memories. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure, I, yeah, because it's not just all of a sudden, boom, it's multiplied, but it's, it's they're handing it out and doesn't. It's like the widow's oil; it doesn't run out. Right. That's what I was going to compare it to. Is that is that the thing? Is it just like they're just reaching into baskets and there's always bread and fish in there? Yes. But that's what that's what I would say is happening here. There you go. Uh, and it's enough to feed the entire crowd plus leftovers. So there's enough leftover there, and uh, not just five thousand. Oh, true. Sorry. So it's five thousand men. men, right? So yeah. there's there's a really good chance that women and children were there too, uh, and so that that number is. I mean, conservatively, I think scholars have put it between nine and ten thousand people conservatively. Um, and so, but that, I mean, that's a significant thing and there's leftovers. Yeah. It's a lot. Who doesn't like leftovers? It's true. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, Luke adds the detail that this took place in the region near Bethsaida. Uh, so this is like northeastern Sea of Galilee area, uh, somewhat close to Capernaum, not like exactly next to it, but it's around in the same region. Uh, John, hey, John actually covers this miracle, which is funny. John, yeah, is that you? Because most of the miracles in the Synoptic Gospels are not, not in John. John. Uh, and as a reminder, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They they tell a lot of the same stories. They're not exactly all the same, but they overlap a lot. John is usually just kind of off in the corner writing his own thing. and then But once in a while, he's like, oh, yeah, this was a big one. I'll, I'll talk about this. This is one worth too. showing. Exactly. Um, so John – uh, adds in a few more details, we find out that Philip is the disciple who comes up with the 200 denarii price. So when he says, when the disciples say, hey, this is what's going to cost, Philip's the one who has that. Uh, and then Andrew is the disciple who finds the boy who offered up five loaves, offered up his loaves and fish. And we also meet the boy because originally they're just told, hey, this is what we could find. So in John, we find out it's a boy, this is his lunch, uh, and he offers it to Jesus in faith. And then Andrew's the one who finds him. So good deal. Uh, and then John also shares, I, I love this detail. So funny. He shares that the crowd wanted to make Jesus king by force in that moment. And so Jesus withdrew. So he perceived that they were going to make, basically force him to be king. And that's what, that's what would have happened. But Jesus backs away. Uh, and it, it just reminds me of like, we can look at that and think about how it's, it's, well, actually, sorry, put a pin in that listeners. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So we're, but I think sometimes we... We look at the hunger of the people as kind of like, oh, what a bunch of fools. But it's like, no, this is a different time. But we'll, I'll get back to that here in a little bit. Uh, so going to Mark chapter six, after Jesus withdraws, his disciples hop in a boat and they journey to Bethsaida proper, as it seemed what's happening here. Uh, however, it's real slow going and it's against the wind. And then this happens. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them, but they saw him walking on the sea and they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Uh, and so the disciples still not fully getting the picture of who Jesus is. Uh, they will eventually, <laughs> they'll, they'll eventually get with the program, but it's still taking a little while here. Um, I also just love that Jesus plan was essentially to walk past them. And then when they got to shore, just be like, hey, what took you guys so long? And they'll be like, come on, Jesus, what are you what are you doing right now? But they see him. And so uh, Jesus walking on water. Another one of the really famous miracles, if you're not a Christian, you've probably at least heard of the Jesus walking on water thing. Uh, Matthew shares the same story, but he adds this pretty important detail. So this is omitted in Mark. But in Matthew, it continues and it says, and Peter answered to him, sorry, this is after they call out to Jesus. 
Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come with you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink and cried and cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Uh, so in the Matthew in the Matthew portion, we're seeing that Peter actually gets out of the boat, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then also we're seeing that they're beginning to, like I said, they don't fully have the picture of who Jesus is at this point, but they're beginning to get the picture. And eventually we'll get to, oh, I forgot where it is, but when, when Peter makes his declaration about who he is and all of a sudden definitely after the resurrection is when they're getting this idea, but they're under, but they're understanding clearly that Jesus is something greater than a prophet is what's happening, but still they're not getting the full story. Uh, and then John chapter six, Jesus adds in the detail that when, or sorry, John adds in the detail that when Jesus got back into the boat, it was immediately transported to dry land. So they didn't actually even sail. Jesus gets back in the boat and all of a sudden the boat appears where they are going. Uh, Mark then shares that they arrived at Gennesaret or Genesaret, which means that the wind really blew them off course, or uh, that's where Jesus transported them to, or possibly they landed near Bethsaida and then walked over to Genesaret. One one of those things is what's happening here because it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, but yeah, Mark shares the detail that that's where they're at. Uh, and Jesus heals many, many people. Matthew shares the same story about Jesus healing many people. It's kind of just a recap of a bunch of miracles that he's doing. Uh, continuing on in John chapter six, we find out that the crowd goes to Capernaum looking for Jesus, who finds him probably finds him nearby, which is probably he's in Gennesaret at that point. Uh, they arrive looking for more food. And so this is where, this is where I did want to talk about this. Um, I think that sometimes we look at the way people went after food and just be like, guys, quit being so greedy. Because here's the thing in modern, in the modern Western world, an insanely small number of people actually know what it is to be hungry, actually know what it is to struggle for food. Because anything, if I, if I want food, there are thousands of places I can go right now for not very much money and I can be full. So the the idea of being hungry and the idea of someone being able to provide you a meal would have been a much bigger deal to these people than it is for us today. And so the reason that like, they would go and make him king is remember um, when, when David brings the ark back to the city of Jerusalem, what does he do? He, ha- he orders great feasts and he prepares out of the storehouses of the king. He feeds his people. Uh, when Nehemiah rededicates, uh, I shouldn't say rededicate the temple. I forgot what was the, it was the, the, um, the rededication of covenant that Nehemiah has. And the people are realizing how they've been breaking it. And he says, no, this is a day for celebration. What did they do? They feast, right? Like this is a thing that the king would do. He would provide food. Uh, for his subjects. And if you look at history, what is the quickest way to get deposed as a king? It's not feeding your subjects. <laughs> like if, true. If, if you look Very at, true. if you look at revolutions, if you look at why people were deposed, it was more often than not, the people are starving and they were getting tired of it. Um, and so you know, uh, the, 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 the King Louis come back to uh, come back to mind here with that. So um, I think sometimes we judge the people of Israel in this moment for wanting 
just the straight up food that Jesus is giving uh, without really taking the time to put ourselves into that situation. But anyway, this does, but Jesus does rebuke them lightly for this. And this leads into another one of his really famous speeches. This isn't necessarily a miracle, uh, but this is the famous, I am the bread of life speech. So just a few or sermon, I guess might be a better word for it. Uh, But a few highlights from this. In verses 26 to 29, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. And they said to him, what, will, what must we do, we do to know to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Uh, In verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, Verses 46 through 47 say, "Not, not, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, that one I included and I put, I've scribbled in my Bible, like I get the cannibalism thing. Um, and if, if you don't know, one of the earliest apologetic documents that we have, and when I say apologetic documents, what that means is uh, defending the faith, right? So it's today, apologetics is very much centered on uh, countering atheism in general, usually is kind of like the big ones that you see um, kind of refuting refuting aspects of like macro evolution and things like that. Uh, in the Roman times, the, the first apologetic that we have is, Hey, we're not cannibals because the Romans are hearing this. Hey, they're going into their church meetings and they're eating someone's flesh and drinking his blood. And so like you first read that and you're like, this is ridiculous. And then you read this passage like, okay, I mean like, yeah, I get how you, I get how you get there from that. So maybe a, a nice little apologetic explaining what's going on would have been important as well. So fun fact for you, one of the first pieces of apologetics that we have was just explaining what communion is. So there you be. It's a big deal. Uh, Jumping over to Mark in chapter seven, we see a scrap between Jesus and the Pharisees who were arguing that Jesus was sinning for not holding to their traditions in addition to scripture. Uh, Jesus gets accused of that a lot. Yeah, it's true. And and in fairness, this is true. (laughs) Jesus is not holding to their traditions in addition to scripture. Uh, But Jesus then exposes their hypocrisy, showing that some of their traditions are actually contrary to the law. Um, I should have, I don't know why I didn't write down his example, but he gives, he gives an example where he's like, Hey, if you follow this tradition to the letter, it actually goes against the, the law that you're even going. And the Pharisees are like, Oh, I guess he has, Shh, don't talk about I that. I guess it kind of has a point. Uh, and then he then addresses the crowd sharing that it is what is inside of a person that defiles them. Uh, which Mark actually points to as a mo- as the moment where Jesus declares all food is clean, um, although we won't see that widely accepted until Acts. And fam- if, again, if, if Mark is the gospel, that's kind of Peter's recollection of Jesus. This could very much be Peter being like, hey, it took a dream for Jesus to really make this explicit to me. But now that I think about it, this is what he was saying back then. This is like, this is so what he, true. so it is kind of, but yeah, Don't. even Peter who was present for this is not going to realize this is what Jesus was trying to say for uh, another I don't know how long this is between between this moment and, but you know, maybe another couple of years, maybe or maybe months. I don't know how deep into the timeline we are at this point. I should probably know that. Uh, Matthew chapter fifteen. We're deep enough. There you go. It shares the same story, but it adds this interesting parable that Jesus also told. Uh, it says, and this is in verse twelve. Then he said, then the disciples came and said to him, "Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying?" And I feel like Jesus is like, "Yeah, obviously." Uh, but he answered, "Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up." 
Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with the unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And that's the that's the uh, the thing that the Pharisees were saying, hey, Jesus isn't washing his hands right now. And it's not in scripture. <laughs> it's just like, it's just a, it's a, a vocal, not a vocal, it's an oral tradition that the Pharisees added on. Um, I also love that Jesus is basically just like, do you, like, are you guys, you guys still not getting this? And so he kind of has to keep reminding the disciples over and over again. And it gives us faith. Like, you know, when we kind of aren't getting what the, maybe the Holy Spirit is telling us, it gives us faith that, hey, the disciples didn't get it and they had Jesus in the flesh right there. Uh, going back to Mark, uh, remember that time when Jesus told the disciples not to go to Gentile areas from a few minutes ago? Uh, well, in Mark, we read about a Gentile woman whose daughter has been possessed by a demon. Jesus, t- she, So she goes to Jesus asking for him to cast this demon out, and Jesus tells her that it is not yet time for the Gentiles. Uh, and he uses the metaphor of you give food to the children first, and then you feed the dogs afterwards. You don't feed everyone at the same time. Which is an offensive statement. Like, yeah. It's like- <laughs> when Jesus is speaking here, like this is – and it's not Jesus being offensive. He's actually He's actually using this as a cultural illustration for those listening and observing what's going on. So it's not even a rebuke of her. It's actually to draw in and then reveal to the Jews that are around observing this. It's actually a backhanded review, rebuke to them because of how he treats and examines and talks to this lady. So mm-hmm. it's probably one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. And she, ha- and she has very high character with how she responds to it as well because she's not like, how dare you? But she's you? – yeah, her, her reply is that even like the dogs will come under the table and the children will feed them scraps. And Jesus, Jesus is touched by her faith and yeah. he heals her daughter. So really cool. Uh, Matthew shares the same story. I couldn't find any like big yeah, details big, that, were, yeah, where that were worth pointing out. Uh, of course, I say that and I may have missed something really obvious. And you probably can, did. And then now. you can write in and be like, you idiot, Evan. Uh, you dog. <laughs> I'm leaving the podcast. <laughs> you, you dirty dog. Uh, so Mark chapter seven, verses 31 through 37. Uh, we see that Jesus Jesus travels to the areas of Tyre and Sidon, which are kind of northwest of Israel. They're right on the border of what would be um, like the northern border of the kingdom of Israel back in ancient days. And so they're Gentile cities, but there's definitely a Jewish remnant of people there. Uh, he meets a man who is both deaf and has a speech impediment. Jesus takes him aside and heals him privately. And again, he tells him not to tell anyone. Uh, However, as we've already seen, that's a tall order. So when he's healed, he begins to tell everyone about what's going on. Uh, In Matthew, he gives a more general recap of his ministry in that area. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up to the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So good stuff there. Uh, going back into Mark, we then see traveling, sorry, Jesus traveling with a crowd of 4,000 for three days and he wants to feed them. But the disciples are like, well, how's that going to happen? And I just, I always just imagine Jesus being like, guys, like, seriously, come on. Uh, and so surprise, Jesus pulls off. Listen, I would have been in the same boat of like, uh, how? (laughs) 
This time, yeah. though, it's not as impressive of a miracle because he only feeds 4,000 and because he had seven loaves to work with instead of five. So <laughs> weeks off. I mean, I could do, just kidding, I can't do that. This yeah, I was going to say, be careful. <laughs> I actually thought I was like, no, I'm not going to say that. Oh, man. But yeah, so Jesus, it, it is It is funny because I feel like as a kid, I don't remember the 4,000 ever because, you know, the 5,000 gets all the all the credit, gets all the stories. But Jesus does it twice. He probably did it more times. Like I, I, the way John ends his gospel saying that there was no way I could record all the miracles that Jesus did is is probably pretty accurate. Uh, and so this seems to be a miracle that Jesus does with some level of frequency, at least twice he pulls this off. So there you go. Uh, Matthew tells the same story. Going back into, uh, sorry, moving forward in Matthew though, in chapter 16, uh, after this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so they're together at this point, uh, confront Jesus at the same time asking for a sign. I love Jesus's reply. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it it will be stormy weather for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Uh, so they ask, they ask him for a sign and Jesus is like, you guys look up at the sky and you predict the weather for the next day, but you can't just look at what I'm doing and see like, Hey, maybe, maybe I just am who I say I am. <laughs> like it, it, it is. I, I don't know. I, I love how he goes after the Pharisees and Sadducees at this moment. Um, and the sign of Jonah, we don't know exactly what this is, but it seems I, I, I lean on the idea that it's, you know, Jonah goes into the, the, the belly of the great uh, sea creature for three days and then is spat out. And so what does Jesus do for three days? He goes into the belly of Sheol and then comes back out. So I think that's probably the sign that he's referring to here. So that'll be for later, you know, spoilers, listeners, Jesus rises from the dead. Uh, Going to Mark chapter eight, Mark gives a a less detailed uh, version of that story. And then he then moves on to a discussion with the disciples. Uh, Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples start complaining about how they don't have any food. And Jesus gets really frustrated with them. This is one of my favorite passages of Jesus just being done with the the disciples. Uh, But this is in verse 17. It says, and Jesus aware of this said, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, and I can only imagine with this tone, 12. And the seven <laughs> for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And then Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? <laughs> like, I just love that he's just like, like you're, you're wondering where Brett, your, your food is going to come from. You've watched this happen, guys. Like, why are you even doubting that yeah. I'm going to take care of you? Uh, and he's trying to get, he's trying to get out of spiritual truth. He's like, be, beware. Um, when he, he, he's using a metaphor, right? He's saying, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees or, and, and, and of Herod. Or in other words, beware of the things that they're going to be adding into what I'm saying, because it, it's not good. It's not healthy. And all the disciples can think when he says leaven, because that's what you use to make bread is like, oh, bread. Yeah. I'm really hungry right now. And she's like, guys, <laughs> come on. Like you're, you're missing the forest for the trees right now. Oh man. Literally Jesus coined that phrase. It's just, ah, that'd be cool. But he, but he did <laughs> not. Kidding. Aaron, I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't realize I was getting to the end of my notes, but I'm, oh, that that was it. So yeah. Matthew tells the same story, but he doesn't. He does include that the disciples got the point at the end. So Matthew, Mark leaves it on a cliffhanger when he yeah, says, "Do you absolutely. still not, do you still not understand?" Matthew lets us know 
they started to understand. So I, I like the Mark version better because I just like the, the I like I like a nice comedic cut. What are you gonna do? Uh, but yeah, so that that does wrap it up for my readings today. But not before Aaron continues on with our gospel readings today, and he's got a couple really good famous stories that we're going to talk about. Uh, before we jump over there, though, we do want to say to take a moment to leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast or app that you're listening on, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two big ones that help us out a ton. On Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review, and if you do, we'll read it on the podcast as well, just to give you a shout out. Um, and like we said earlier, you know, we appreciate just hearing your feedback. We appreciate yeah. knowing that we appreciate hearing how this podcast is able to help people, um, whether it's understanding the Bible or deepening your faith, that is incredibly meaningful for Aaron and I to hear. And so thank you for everyone who, who reaches out with those with those things. Yeah, especially if, I mean, the simple way of saying it, like it, we, we are able to come alongside you, unknowingly encouraging you. And so when those reviews are written, it actually comes alongside us, encourages us as we continue to do this. So uh, we do appreciate that and do encourage you to jump on your app and leave a review for us. Um, just, just to be clear, uh, the, the point that the disciples got at the end of Matthew 16 was the fact that Jesus was referring to the teachings of the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders. So they understood what Jesus was getting at in that moment. Um, so I, I didn't want to leave us on a cliffhanger, even though that's what Evan likes to do is he likes cliffhangers. So, uh, we it's do, <laughs> we do shift into, uh, the book of Mark again, where we, uh, even Matthew and the, the first Luke account here, they, they talk about Peter's confession. Uh, but Mark here talks about a blind man, blind man that is healed, uh, where Jesus he is brought to Jesus. Jesus leads him by the hand out of the village. He then spits on his eyes, then lays his hands on him and says, hey, do you see anything? And this blind man says, I see people that are walking, but they look like trees, uh, which is kind of a curious thing. So it tells me a couple things that this blind man was not always blind because he understood people and what they would potentially look like. Uh, but that he had lost his sight somewhere in his life. Uh, and so then it says that Jesus laid his hands on the man's eyes, and then the man saw clearly uh, and was able to see at this point. And so it's one of those things that I love about the way Jesus performs miracles is it's never the same way. And I think it's worth repeating and reminding us that it's not a, there's not a formula that we're given that says, do this, 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 and this, and everything's going to work out. It's a matter of Jesus shows up in the moment and is responsive to a situation he's confronted with and that the Holy Spirit shows up in power and brings healing and does the miraculous. So even today, it's not going to be the same thing over and over and over again, but there's going to be moments where the Holy Spirit shows up in the midst of situations, circumstances. After this man who is blind now sees is sent home and said, and is in essence told, don't go back through the village. So he doesn't go through the village, but he heads home. And then we get in this moment where Jesus turns to his his 12 disciples and he says, hey, who, who does people say that I am? And every, they will some say Elijah, some say a prophet. And then Jesus turns a question to them and says, well, who do you say I am? This is where we get Peter's confession. Uh, and we will see a, kind of a similar account in Matthew and Luke here uh, about Peter's confession of faith where he says, well, you're the Messiah. Uh, you're, you're the son of God. And Jesus's response is affirming, but also tells him, don't tell anyone. Um, we get this account in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 21, which is the confession. And this is the more detailed of the accounts. So I'm going to read this one real quick. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Uh, and just for clarity, this is Matthew 16, 13 to 20. It says, they replied, some say that John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is the only New Testament book in this instance that refers to the, to the prophet Jeremiah. I do not believe there's another reference to Jeremiah 
in the gospels. I could be wrong, oh, but I'm pretty sure that this is the one reference point in Jesus. And it's just referring to Jeremiah, which is a pretty significant thing because Jeremiah is pretty incredible. Isaiah, Isaiah gets all the love. You know, it's, I got it. So he true. gets referenced so many times. Poor Jeremiah just left out in the well, cold. Well, listen, Isaiah was talking about the coming Messiah. Jeremiah was just lamenting and weeping and rebuking <laughs> people Jeremiah, for not listening. Jeremiah, no was, to him. Jeremiah was just a massive bummer. That's yeah, true. That whole thing, yep. But he did what God called him to do. That's true. Good job. Uh, so it continues on in verse 15 and says, but you, he asked him, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter asked him, you are the Messiah. I answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples orders not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So we get that really cool moment where we get this exhortation and encouragement to Peter for opening his mouth and confessing that that he is the Messiah that was revealed from on high. Uh, And then we get the Luke account, which is a very simple and short account of Peter's confession. Uh, But in Peter's confession here, it says God's Messiah. Uh, It says, you are God's Messiah is Peter's response to the question of Jesus and then it ends. That's where the Luke account ends because that's all that Luke cared about highlighting in that moment. Um, we shift back into the, in the next account we get in Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke here is we get the the foretelling of Christ's passion. In other, in other words, he's foretelling that he's going to be rejected. He's going to die. He's going to raise again at the hands of the Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders. Um, we do get this moment in Matthew or Mark chapter eight, where Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. And says, you will not, I won't let anything happen to you. And this is where we get the Christ rebuke, probably his strongest rebuke of Peter, where he says, in essence, get behind me, Satan. Um, And he says this, that you're not thinking about God's concerns, but of human concerns, Uh, which is significant because Peter was looking out and didn't like what Jesus was saying about his coming death, coming rejection, death and resurrection. Peter didn't like that. So Peter was trying to exhort and encourage and come alongside his friends. So I, I might suggest that his intentions were good, but they were rooted in the human concerns and the selfish concerns, which is why he says, get behind me, Satan, because it's a very much a uh, an evil perspective and an evil way of response is selfishly. It's a real roller coaster that, that Peter's, Peter's taking us on right now. Yep. And so, so we have this incredible moment where Jesus then rebukes him. Uh, and at this point in Mark chapter eight, we shift where Jesus calls the crowd and the 12 together. Uh, and tells them a hard truth. This picture of following him means one must deny themselves and carry their cross. That whoever loses their life for his sake will find it. Whoever saves their life for their sake will lose it. And he paints this very hard truth to the crowd, the masses, not just the 12, but the crowd following him at this point. And then we get this one little verse in Mark chapter nine, where it says, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. This is an allusion to... uh, the, the, the disciple John, uh, but also Jesus is speaking to the crowd at large, but he's saying there's some here, you're not going to taste death. You're actually going to be brought into eternity and experience the kingdom of God. So we get that in Mark. Then we shift into Matthew 16, 21 to 28, which is similar to the Mark passages. We get the same, a similar account here. Uh, and then in Luke chapter nine, verse 21 to 20, 27, a similar account, but there's no Peter rebuke. In Matthew, there's a Peter rebuke uh, about get behind me, Satan. But in Luke, there is no rebuke of Peter, which I thought was interesting in and of itself. Then we shift to what Evan alluded to earlier is the transfiguration where I said Jesus glows. Uh, (laughs) 
Where's your app, bro? Uh, but we get this in Mark chapter 9. It's also shown in Matthew 17 and then also in Luke chapter 9 as well. Um, but it is this moment where Peter, James, and John were witness to um, Peter will open his mouth. And I thought this was interesting because in the Mark account, it says that he spoke. And I'm going to read a portion of this passage um, because it's worth reading. But I thought it was interesting and worth saying uh, that when, one of the responses when Peter opens his mouth was that he, uh, where am I at? It says, Peter opens his mouth because he did not know what to say and since they were terrified. So he didn't know what to say and they were terrified in this moment because in essence, it, it, what they're seeing is is incredible. Um, and then after this moment, a voice of God shows up. So I'm going to read the Matthew passage real quick, verses 1 through 17, or 13, chapter 17. So you'll see kind of what I'm referring to. But I thought it was interesting that that line was there in the Mark passage. Uh, it says this in verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Look, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, what he's talking about is like setting up almost like tents, mini tabernacles, mini temples for them to honor them because they are anchors of the faith. They're anchors of their beliefs, and it's a way of honor. So Peter is trying to honor and and glorify and worship what what he's experiencing right there. Um, but then it says this, while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. And then it says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered this question. So you see this incredible moment of Jesus with his core three disciples and there that he's told, he transfigures before them. They have this incredible moment where the voice of God actually speaks and says, this is my son, do what he says. And then he's, they're told, don't tell anybody about this till after the resurrection. They're still unsure what that means, to be honest with you, because we see another account here in a, in a short little bit about Jesus foretelling of his death and resurrection. And it says that they're distressed and perplexed. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but it says that they don't tell you and they says, don't tell anybody until after the resurrection. And then they ask a question about this idea of Elijah. And it says this, Jesus in verse 11 says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything. He replied, but I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did what they pleased to him in the same way. The son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So it's the moment where they realize that John the Baptist was the Elijah preparing the way for the Messiah. It's only reinforcing who he is and reinforcing Peter's confession of who he is. And it's this incredible moment uh, for these disciples about the divinity, the, the reality of who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36, it's a similar account. It's not 100%, but it's really close. Um, the main difference here is Luke says, Matthew and Mark both say six days after, and Luke says eight days after. And so if you're reading this from a literal point of view, you see a discrepancy, but there's actually, I think, theological implications here that I want to account for. Uh, And I actually stole this from a pastor in Missouri named Brian Zand. I think that's how you say his last name. 
Uh, but I'm just going to take an excerpt from uh, a website blog that he wrote concerning this, which I think is really, it's really an incredible way to, to review this because it's one thing to remember that these are not, not just historical accounts of what's happening, right? It's not just an account of what the life of Jesus looked like, but there's also theological implications that each author of the gospels is writing with the intention of. And, and so I think it's important to, to understand the discrepancies may not always be discrepancies because there's an intention by the authors to remind us of the theological truth of who Jesus is and the theological implications and fulfillment of Jesus being the Messiah. So coming out of the Messiah confession of Peter, coming into the transfiguration and into this moment, I think there's something that was really interesting to read. And so I'm going to read this. It says this, uh, and again, this is Pastor Brian Zond or Zand, however you say his last name. I'm sorry if I'm butchering it. Uh, But it says this, Mark places the transfiguration six days after Peter's confession and Matthew follows suit. Six days as in the sixth day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Mark and Matthew want to associate the coming of the kingdom with the crucifixion on Good Friday. The glory of the kingdom does indeed come through the cross, yet Luke does does something different. When Luke writes his gospel sometime after Mark and Matthew, he is aware that his predecessors say six days later, thus connecting the glory of the kingdom with the crucifixion. Luke knows this is true, but he wants to add an additional theological move. So he says eight days later, as in the eighth day, which is the day of the re- of resurrection and new creation. And so I think it's a really interesting total, if you look at it from a total account perspective, it really is this coming resurrection and fulfillment of the as the Messiah of his rejection of his death and his resurrection for the redemption of mankind. And so I think it's a really fun way to see how Luke, who's not a... He's not dumb. He's actually a very smart, well-wrote, well-educated individual. He's getting accounts, but he also sees the theological implications of what is happening. So six days after the transfiguration, you get this uh, attachment to the crucifixion, which is part of Christ's, uh, f- not fulfillment, but what's, uh, part of Christ's uh, life and what's going to be at the cr- in his death, but also the resurrection is the completion of that too. So you see that in Luke as well. So I think it's a really interesting and unique way to to just read the, the the differences there because I think there's a much larger theological implication. Now, again, this is an open-handed thing, but I think there's massive, massive uh, uh, indications here for us as followers of Christ today. You, We then continue in the conversation. Uh, at, after the transfiguration, there's this demon-possessed boy who's healed. We get this uh, account in Math, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, a couple similar, or mostly similar, a couple differences in the Mark and Matthew passages. Uh, Luke is a much simpler account in chapter nine, verse 37 to 43, but Mark nine, 14 to 29, it's this picture where they immediately return, come down the hill, the mountain after the transfiguration, there's a, there's an argument that's broke, breaking out. Jesus arises at this crowd and he says, what are you guys arguing about? And the, the I don't, I can't remember. I'm sorry if it's the, the man's, uh, the, the son's dad, or if it's, uh, someone in the crowd mentions, well, this man, his his son has been demon possessed, and they brought him to your disciples to heal him, and your disciples couldn't do it. And uh, we get this moment, <clears throat> excuse me, when the man runs to Jesus and finally explains to him what's happening. His son has been demon possessed. He convulses. He foams at the mouth. He's thrown into the fire or water on a regular occurrence. And Jesus Jesus says very very strongly this simple picture of you unbelieving and purse generation. And he's, he's frustrated spiritually at the, um, 
the lack of trust and faith and connection to what they've already been sent out to do, mind you, because they've already been sent out uh, and seeing the miraculous happen, seeing demons uh, uh, exercised and all, all, all of those different things. You almost uh, said demons healed, didn't I, you? I did almost say demons <laughs> healed. Um, but so he's, he's frustrated because the lack of faith existing in those uh, that are closest in his followers, he's not rebuking them and saying, you are horrible in a perverse generation. He's saying that the, the culture has bled in. There is a lack of faith in my followers. And, he's, and so it's a very strong rebuke, which is important because there's correction here. He says, bring me the son. He calls out, rebukes the demon. Uh, the son is healed. And the father goes away happy with his son. And then as the disciples move forward with Jesus, they stop and say, why Why could we not deliver this son? And Jesus simply says that this can only happen by prayer. Uh, in Matthew 17, the rebuke is you have little faith. And then there's this discourse. And he says, you can't, you didn't do this because you have little faith. And he says, you only need the faith the size of a mustard seed. This is my paraphrase. And this is where we get this um, exhortation of, if you tell this mountain to get up and move, it will it will do that. You just have to have faith the size of a mustard seed and it will happen. Um, and so we, then we get, like I said, Luke passage is similar to this account, but it's, but it's very, very simple, uh, very small, not a lot of depth and detail, but it is similar to the previous two accounts there. Um, then we get Christ's second mention of his coming death and resurrection. Um, and it says in Mark chapter nine that the disciples still didn't understand and Matthew chapter 17, which is a similar account to Christ mentioning his second, the second time his coming death and resurrection, it says that the disciples are deeply distressed. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 43 to 45, we get this. It says, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told the disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it, which I think is a little revealing to part of the reason why they were still struggling to fully comprehend, because there was a certain limitation put on the comprehension to what Jesus was referring to. And it's it's kind of important Like that was part of the, 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 the challenge and part of the journey that Christ was taking them on to prepare them for when he actually was, in fact, going to give up his life in, in, in crucifixion and death, and but then also raise again on the third day. We then get this one little standalone passage in Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 24 to 27. I'm going to read this real quick. Uh, it says, why they, or when they came to Capernaum, Capernaum is what, how you say it, right? I always say Capernaum. I, I mean, who knows the right way? Right? I have no idea. Well, Jesus does, but um, that's a dumb joke. Uh, Those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and, and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said, and he went into the house. Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them, one or for me and for you. Um, and so it's just kind of this random story in this situation where, again, we're seeing a continuing growing uh, frustration and a growing antagonism towards Jesus from the religious leaders. The temple tax was something that was allowed by the Roman government, but was not legally required for everyone to pay. So this is a uh, a Jewish religion tax that was in effect, but not legally required. So not everybody had to do it. 
and so what, what Jesus is saying here in the midst of this, this question being asked by Peter from the religious leaders is uh, who, who is responsible to pay and who, who, how do we pay it? So Jesus is saying very simply through a question, like, do the kings tax strangers? Then the strangers have to pay. But the fact that this is a religious um, temple tax, it's the family of God in essence, those who worship God, which should be considered sons, which means they should not be paying a temple tax is what Jesus is getting at. But because we don't want to offend them, because he was trying to guard against the offense, I guess, even though I feel like some of the times he totally offended people on purpose regarding to religious leaders, um, he made a simple statement that the sons and he, he are free, but don't offend them. So go pay him the tax by simple fishing, by going and fishing, which that miracle in and of itself, cast a fish hook and take the first fish and opens its mouth, you'll find a coin, which will be enough to pay the two drachma tax for both Jesus and Peter. But that was kind of a fun standalone moment. We get in chapter Mark 9, verse 33 to 37, as well as Matthew 18, 1 through 6, and then Luke 9, 46 to 48, is this argument that breaks out about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And so we see in Mark chapter 9, this argument breaks out. It's uh, like I already said, it's his, among his disciples are saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus hears the argument and he refers to a child. He says, those who become like a child will be welcome. And then you must become like a child, the least in the kingdom. He says, but whoever harms a child, it's better if a millstone is tied around his neck and he's tossed into the sea, which is a very strong statement. And it's true. So don't make a, a, a child to don't harm a child. Don't come to someone who's weak and disavow them or remove them from the kingdom of God. In essence, he's saying the least among you is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so we see that there's this argument and Jesus is calling them to a much higher view of things where it's not about status. It's not about wealth or position. It's actually about the fact that we are all the least in the kingdom, that we all must be reminded that no one is greater than another. And if we don't come like children, where and this is this is the picture. I watch my kids as a dad of three kids. I watch them interact with people all the time. I watch them interact with people that I potentially just to be kind of be honest without being judged. I avoid because I don't know them or they look different or uh, they they are they don't seem as friendly. Like I, whatever the case is, like children for whatever reason don't have this filter of avoidance, they have this filter of who is that and what are they doing and engagement. And so Jesus saying very simply, the least in the kingdom is who's the greatest, which means they should be the ones that are honored. They should be the one that are cared for. And he calls a child and, and refers to a child, which children reviewed as inconveniences. They were viewed as problematic. They were viewed as in some respects blessings, but at the same time, they were also viewed as lesser than. And so Jesus is drawing this hard line about understanding who's the greatest, it's the least. Um, and in Matthew 18, we have a similar account, but it says that the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, uh, but we know that an argument is what breaks out first. And so it causes Jesus to, to engage with this question. Uh, and Luke is a very similar account, but Jesus is drawing a very clear line about who the greatest is. It's those who are the least of that are viewed as the least in society, those are viewed as the least in the kingdom, and that's who's the greatest. Um, we then get this moment where the disciples uh, are, are explaining that they found someone casting out demons and that they tried to stop them. And Jesus says in both um, Mark and Luke to don't, not stop them um, because in essence, the paraphrase, whoever's not, whoever's not against you is for you. Uh, in Mark, we get this idea where 
Jesus says, don't stop him because there will, there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, he says, truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Um, and Luke just simply says, whoever is not for you is against, or whoever is not against you is for you. Um, but it is this, this exorcism, like the kingdom, kingdom divided against itself will not stand. If you remember that from last week's discussion. It's the same filter. He's just reminding them, don't stop them because the, the gospel is being preached. The, people are finding freedom because of me. Uh, and so don't, don't stop them, but understand we're on the same team and, and celebrate the deliverance that's happening. We then get uh, this section in Mark chapter 9, uh, followed in uh, as well as Matthew chapter 18, which is a much longer passage here. Um, but we get the, this, this, this warnings that Jesus gives against temptation. Uh, the Mark passage starts off with the discourse about little ones causing them to stumble. Um, don't do it, which is similar to the passage we already kind of hit on talking about the greatest in the kingdom. Um, we see this followed by the exhortation about temptation of the hand, foot, and eye, where he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to wander, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out, gouge it out. And he says, it's better to enter into eternity maimed than into hell whole. Uh, and this is, it's not, Jesus is not saying cut off your parts. He's saying this is the extreme extremity of, no pun intended, the extremity of sin and temptation and understanding to guard against it. Go back to Genesis where God is talking to Cain, right? There's this moment where God tells Cain, hey, sin is is lurking, lurking at your door. It's waiting, it's crouching, it's waiting to have you, but you must master it. Jesus paints a very clear picture about the, the byproduct of sin. If something is causing you to sin, the temptation to sin, get rid of it, remove it from your life and remove it out of your very being. And if it's a hand, he's like, that's how, that's how much we need to take sin uh, heavily. We need to take the weight of sin very, very seriously, the weight of temptation very seriously. Uh, and so he he challenges them. It's better to enter into eternity maimed than to hell, enter into hell whole. Uh, and so he calls a very stark, stark picture for that. Um, he follows this up by talking about them, calling them to be salt among themselves. In other words, to be at peace with one another. And he, he challenges them to be um, and salt and not lose its saltiness and among each other to be at peace and to be, I mean, we hear this later in the, in the New Testament as well as to do everything possible to live at peace among each other. It echoes the, the statement of Jesus here in this passage. Um, Matthew 18, like I've already said, is a very long passage here. Um, it talks about the hand, foot, or eye exhortation again. It, uh, Jesus talks about despise, don't despise the little ones. He, we get the, the pretty well-known passage where it talks about the shepherd goes after the one sheep that, that wanders away and leaves the 99. And when he finds the one, he rejoices for the one more than the 99 who don't leave. We also see this brother, this this conflict resolution. If your brother sins against you, confront them first. If they don't listen, you're supposed to bring one or two others. If they still don't listen, involve the church. And if they still don't listen, then it says that you let him be like someone who doesn't belong, like a Gentile or a tax collector to you. Now, here's the deal. To a Jewish population, Gentiles were not part of the family. So they weren't, they weren't uh, referred to or even preferred to be around. And then the tax collector had its own category below sinners. And so whenever there was oftentimes a rebuke of, or he sits with Jesus, sits with sinners and tax collectors, it's almost an, uh, uh, a tier system where there were sinners, but then there were also tax collectors. So sinners like adulterers and thieves and things like that, but then tax collectors were their own category because oftentimes it was Jewish 
uh, hired Jewish individuals on behalf of the Roman government, taxing their own people. So they were viewed as lesser than. Uh, so you see that uh, exhortation that happens, that rebuke that happens there. Well, it can be it can be seen as harsh too, but also like I think one of the things that we have to remember is that Jesus is making space for three levels yeah. Of, oh, yeah. of opportunity for repentance. So this is not like if your brother sins against you, cut them off. This is you, you're going to talk to them three, on three separate occasions with three different groups of people and bring this to them and say, hey, this happened. Um, you need to repent of this and make it right. And only after it's been rejected all three times is the is the uh, the prescription to remove the person from fellowship as yeah. well. So uh, the, Jesus is very much in this moment still offering grace and mercy yes. and commanding us to do the same. Yeah, and I think that that's, I mean, that again, th- in the same discourse, he's going to talk about forgiving as well. And so he's setting up a conversation where we are in our humanity are quick to cut off. Well, you hurt my feelings. You offended me. You did me wrong. You're done. I have no grace for you. And Jesus is drawing a, a very clear picture. Let it not be with you, my people. And and so it is a very, very strategic conversation and very challenging conversation because it's not easy to do that. Uh, he Jesus then in the same discourse shifts to the idea of authority. He says, uh, you have been given authority to bind uh, on earth and loose on earth where two or more agree in my name will be done by my father. And he talks about the idea and the reality in the context of forgiveness, that there is this freedom and there is this binding and loosing that can exist when two or three are gathered and an agreement with it, with the, the heart of, of a heavenly father, there is that beautiful picture there. Uh, so he talks about authority being binding and loosing where two or more agree, it will be done. And then we see this going back to forgiveness. Cause again, it is a bookend. He talks about, Peter looks at him and says, okay, based upon what you said, Jesus, like, how often should I forgive my brother? If if my brother sins against me multiple times, how often? And and he's, he said, he makes the suggestion seven, is it seven times enough, Lord? And and we've talked about this, I think even last year, I, I one of the more prominent conversations we had was this idea of like, not very often does someone sin against me in the same way seven times. But Jesus says, no, not seven times, but seven times 70. So in our literal sense, we're like, well, okay, so it's uh, it's it's 490 times. Got it. So I'll keep a, a, a ticker list of like one, two, okay, you've hit 12. I still have, you know, 400 and how many ever left to go? 78 left to go. But what Jesus is saying here is it's it's total and utter forgiveness no matter what. You live in a space and in a, in a place of grace and forgiveness because you have been given unlimited, un, un, uh, unending grace and forgiveness. So we are called to return that as well. So he says to Peter very clearly, you are to continue forgiving no matter what because of the forgiveness you've been given. Uh, and then he tells this parable uh, to reinforce his point. And it's this parable of a servant who is indebted to his master for a just an astronomical amount of money. The the sir or the master is going to take his family, throw them in prison until he can pay off the debt. The servant falls on his face and begs for mercy. The, the master who is then moved by compassion then responds in uh, forgiveness and grace and then forgives the debt that's owed. He leaves free of debt and free of the loan, finds another servant who's under him who owes him a small amount of money. Uh, and the same response that he gave the master, this other guy gives this servant, falls on his face, asks for mercy, says, I'll get you the money, I promise. And the servant who was forgiven a large amount of money responds just like the master did. And it's this beautiful picture of God's grace. 
That's actually how it should have gone. It didn't happen that way. Jesus makes Aww. the point where this ma- this servant who has been forgiven a large amount of money reacts in in anger and in uh, uh, entitlement, saying, "No, you owe me." He and he, he throws him in prison until he can pay off the debt. The master catches wind of this because other servants are around. The master catches wind of this and rebukes and lays into this servant, throws him in prison, says, "You are now stuck in prison until you can pay me back my debt." Which, if you don't know this, it's very hard to come up with money when you're in prison, just as a sidebar. And so the, it's this parable that Jesus uses to talk about the impact of forgiveness, where we are forgiven much, seven times 70, we therefore need to give freely seven times 70 forgiveness as well. Uh, and then it says that they he was going to travel to Galilee, but not Judea. This is where this long section ends. It says that he travels to Galilee, not Judea, because the Jews wanted to kill him. Uh, and we're seeing an increasing, like I've already said, hostility towards Jesus. Uh, and we're it, we're also seeing this reinforcement of the statement that his time had not yet come. Uh, and so then as we continue in this week's reading, I actually bring it closer to an end. Uh, actually, I think we're still a little ways out. We still got a few passages left. Just kidding. Oh, uh, we're start, we pick up a John passage, which is why I think I was coming to the end because I know we end in John this week. Uh, but we have this passage in J- chapter 7, verse 1 through 9 where it says this, that Jesus traveled into Galilee since he didn't want to travel to Judea because they were trying to kill him. Uh, and the, the Jewish festival of shelters was near. This is where in the Jewish culture, they would, uh, in essence, build uh, wooden shacks to commemorate their journey through the wilderness and God's provision. Uh, and so it was a, a annual thing where they spent time reflecting on God's provision historically for his people. And so this festival's near and his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you're doing. Here's the deal. His brothers don't really believe him. And so what's happening is there's this moment where his brothers are aware of what the Jews are wanting to do. This is my suggestion. This is what I'm ascertaining. And so it is this, well, let's just go, let him get arrested. Remember, there was a moment where his family showed up because they thought he was out of his mind and they tried to bring him and get him away because they, he, they think he's crazy. Um and so they say, so those brothers say, go to Judea, your, let your disciples see the things you're doing for one. And he says, and they say in verse four, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So nothing's saying, Hey, prove it. Show that you're Messiah. Stop doing things in secret. Go do it publicly, especially as the feast of tabernacles or shelters is coming. And it says verse five in parentheses for even his brothers did not, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' response in verse 6 told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So you see this hostility rising even among his family, which which makes the book of James that we're going through as a church on it even more profound because Jesus shows up to him after his resurrection and James believes he is who he says he is and writes this incredible book in the New Testament, which we'll get to later this year. Um, we see in Luke chapter nine, verses 51 to 56, this passage where it says, when the days are coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined a journey to Jerusalem. So he finally moves towards Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. There's still hostility between Samaritans and Jews. And so because they knew it was just a passing through, the Samaritans did not want them being there. The disciples, James and John, saw this and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, referring Jesus turned and rebuked James and John. 
Again, after this discourse of forgiveness, they don't live that. So he rebukes them. Uh, and then they says they went to another village. We get this passage in Matthew. Again, we're almost done. I promise it's a lot of reading this week, but we get this passage in Matthew chapter eight, verses 18 to 22, as well as Luke nine fifty-seven to 62 about disciples who have come to him said, we will follow you. And Jesus, Jesus's response says, Hey, foxes have done dens and, but, and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to, to lay his head. Uh, and so one of the disciples who says that I'll follow you no matter what, Hey, let me go bury my father. Uh, and Jesus' response is, let the dead bury the dead, which sounds a little bit harsh, but we get in Luke chapter 9 a little bit more picture to understand what actually Jesus is implying here. Uh, in 9, 57 to 62, he has the same thing. Hey, I will follow you no matter what. Jesus responds the same way. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, and then it, he had one of the disciples say, hey, let, my, let me go and bury my father, and then I'll come back and follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. And then he says this, you go spread the news of the kingdom, which which is this picture of urgency. He's drawing a very clear line about the urgency of the good news in the kingdom of God, that the world must hear about the good news and the kingdom that is here at hand. And so he paints this picture of it's far more urgent for you to go spread good news than to bury your father. Let the dead take care of that. Let those who are are, are, are spiritually dead take care of that because you are awakened and alive to the truth of the gospel. And then Jesus says this statement where no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. It's impractical to do that. You're not going to plow straight lines. I think a modern way of understanding it is for those of us who drive, we don't drive while looking behind us because we don't know where we're going and we don't know what kind of accident we're going to cause. It is not safe. It is not practical and it's not realistic to do that. So that's what Jesus is saying here in these two passages. We find these shift into John chapter 10, where there is the Feast of Tabernacles is happening uh, and this is where we're wrapping up kind of towards the end of this week's readings in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 9. Um, but there is the feast happening. He secretly arrives at the feast. He knows the Jews are looking for him. About halfway through the feast where the, the celebration of the week is happening, Jesus goes to the temple, starts teaching. Uh, there's a debate between Jesus and the religious leaders about where Jesus is getting his authority and where his teachings are actually coming from. They're a little bit perplexed and and confused and unsure. Uh, and the religious leaders have sent individuals to go uh, and in essence, get a hold of Jesus and, and, and arrest him and be able to shut him down. Uh, and then we get this passage after Jesus teaches, after he's uh, communicating and speaking with authority, um, it, it, verse 40 says this, that when some of the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely that the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. And we look at it from a modern lens and understand like, yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So yes, he's checking those boxes already. We know that. Uh, but verse 44 says, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the servants came to the chief priests of the Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him? These were the individuals who were sent to Jesus to bring him to the Pharisees because they wanted to put him on trial and arrest him. The servants answered, no one, no man has ever spoken like this, exclamation point, which I think is so incredible to watch. And then the Pharisees responded to them. Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law is accursed. In other words, saying you are all idiots. You don't know what you're talking about. We're the ones versed in the law. We're the ones versed in theological truth. 
you have no idea. You need to listen to what we say, not what this man is saying, because you don't understand. And then Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from earlier in the gospels, gave his life to Christ, was the one that's like, what does it mean to be born again? And Jesus had this explanation of spiritual renewal and spiritual life. The one, and it says this, the one who previously came or who came to him previously and who was one of them said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You are from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they're hanging on this one thing or he came from Galilee, therefore no prophet can come from there. But Nicodemus, who is a follower of Jesus, is also a religious leader, is the one trying to bring a little bit of sense to what the Pharisees are actually asking, where they want to put, they, there's no way you could go through a trial without first hearing what the man says and does. Uh, so that's where we get this. It shifts into verse 53, verses eight, and all the way through eight, chapter 11, is there's a little italicized section in my Bible and in the majority of Bibles where there, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. Um, and and I just want to be clear for a second. I think the even as I was researching again to be reminded of this, the scholarly word is, world is still torn. I think there's a lot more acceptance of this passage in, in the canon of scripture um, because the truth of the passage, the authenticity of the story was circulated in ancient times uh, to validate its accuracy. Um, but it, the, the question is, I think, Evan, you made, you sent the word, it's, it's more apocryphal, most likely in extra biblical content, but the story is accurate because historically it's, it's true. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, it, it very much could be true. Nothing about it contradicts anything else in the Bible. Yeah. It lines up, um, it lines up very accurately with Jesus and what Jesus has modeled in yeah. his life up to this point. But it, it almost certainly was not written by John the apostle. And therefore, like, I wouldn't consider it scripture, if that makes sense. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird spot to put it in, but. It is. It's, it's, it's the toughest placement in this gospel to place this passage of scripture. Yeah. And there's a few like that. There's the. Uh, there's one in Mark, I believe. Yeah. Mark. Is, and that's where we get the snake handling churches from, which is a bummer. Like that wasn't even in the original manuscripts. And now people are just holding vipers. It's like, <laughs> come on, come on. Uh, so, yeah. So all of that to say, like, there is, it's the, the scholarly world is torn. I actually am in the boat where I don't have an issue with it actually being in the canon of scripture. Uh, and I know Evan and I have talked through this for years at different moments. Um, his He doesn't think it's, it, it's necessarily valid to be included in the canon of scripture. It doesn't mean that the authenticity and the truth of the passage is inaccurate. Uh, it's just the placement in this section. And I, and I would agree, actually, it's the hardest shift to go from this debate happening into the story of a woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, and so we find oral tradition is it's where this story was circulated. So the placement is tough. Um, but I, I'm in the camp where I think it's okay to be included in scripture. And I think we've even had a conversation about preaching from this passage. You would not, you would prefer right. not to preach from it. I don't have an issue preaching from it because of the truth of Christ and the heart and the reality of the gospel. Anyways, uh, but that's just, again, and that's just an example of the open-handedness and the, 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 the okayness to evaluate things like this that are not close-handed gospel-centric, um, and and that's the beauty of the body of Christ too. But the story is a woman is caught in the act of adultery by religious leaders. Jesus is at the temple teaching, uh, and it says that they caught the woman, bring, him, bring her to Christ, and say, hey, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says we need to stone her. And the pictures, they all have stones ready to go. And it says, what do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus. So Jesus, at that point, I think it's this, when he starts sitting, he shifts down into the sand as the woman is brought to him. 
He's writing something in the sand. There's all sorts of speculation what that could be. We don't know what it says or what's being done in the sand. Jesus could have been drawn a, a tic-tac-toe board for all we know. Um, I'm not trying to be tongue-in-cheek, but I'm just trying to be honest. Like, we don't really know what was written in the sand. But he says, okay, let he doesn't disagree with their stance and their statement, but he puts the onus back on them and says, okay, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Think about it for a moment. The only person in that circle, in that place that was without sin is who? Jesus. So he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. He goes back to what he's doing. And it says in, in, the, in the scripture that one by one, they left, starting with the oldest leaders first. So there is this moment where they release, they, it says they drop their, their stones one by one. And then Jesus afterwards looks up at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? They've all left my Lord. And then Jesus says this, I don't accuse you either. Now go and sin no more. And, and it shows this incredible picture of grace and truth where it's not just grace and forgiveness, but it's also now go and live in response to this truth and don't sin anymore because of the life that I'm giving you, the life that I've given. Um, and so it's this incredible story. It's in this incredible passage. That's what's going on in that story. Um, after the story in John chapter 8, we go back into what's the what has been found in the earliest manuscripts. And you can pick up John 8.52 all the way. In, or sorry, John 7:52 all the way to 8:12, and almost read it as if it's successive. And so you get out of this. You're not from Galilee too. Um, investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from the Pharisee or from Galilee. Then you shift into this discourse about. It says this in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so it's, it, it reads seamlessly from 52, seven chapter, chapter seven, verse 52 to eight, verse 12. Uh, but he talks about the idea of the light of the world. And then he talks about this idea of his testimony. And I'm going to read this as it's the last passage we'll read this week. Um, but it says this starting verse 13. I just read verse 12. That's what I'm saying. 13. So, so the Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus replied, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. See, even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your father? And Jesus says, you never, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would ask, you would also know my father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So there's this discourse and debate that goes back and forth about the authority of Jesus's testimony. Jesus is saying, if you understood who my father was, you would actually know who I am. You proclaim to know who my father is, but you actually don't know. And this is stuff that would rile up and frustrate the religious leaders. This is what leads the religious leaders to want to arrest him, to kill him, and and to, in essence, fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah through their hands. But this is these are the moments, but it says, and I love that this phrase is because it's just, again, it's a buildup. John is building us up. The Gospels are building us up to this moment where Jesus' death and resurrection will play out, but it's not yet time. And so no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. It just shows the supernatural protection and the powerful divinity protection of Christ in the midst of, of hostility and those who are seeking to get him. Uh, and that's where we end this week's reading in John chapter eight. There you go. Yeah, it's a good it's a good spot to wrap it up for sure. I always love just the little reminders of when it says, you know, like 
they did not take him because his hour had not yet come. That means like even when Jesus is seemingly at his least powerful, he's in charge. <laughs> like even in the moment yeah, where absolutely. Jesus is going to the cross, like this is all according to the plan. This is why this is what is supposed to happen. So pretty crazy when you think about it. Uh, well, before we wrap up today, let's talk about what we learned. I feel kind of guilty because I'm double dipping on my application. Cheater. So, I know. it's uh, Well, it's because I'm speaking about this on Sunday. Well, not this whole topic, but this Cheater. will be an analogy that I use on Sunday as well. But So if you're going to be here on Sunday, plug yours. Yeah. In fairness, when, uh, the gospel of Matthew, I did I kind of studied last year. And so I have like a bunch of highlights and marks in my Bible already. And I put theological particles over the section that I'm going to talk about. But uh, so the Pharisees, right? Jesus confronts them and he talks about how they are following their own traditions, but they're not following to scripture. They're not following what God has commanded in the law. And the idea is that over the hundreds of years since those things were written, uh, or even since like, let's say the intertestamental period is really when a lot of this stuff arises, the traditions that have arisen in that moment, in that time period, the Pharisees hold basically the same weight with those as they do with the scripture itself. And so like a really easy example of this is medieval Christianity where all of a sudden we get into, like if you read Dante's Inferno and talking about hell and all those different things, we're like, like Satan's kind of in charge. Like that is just, that is not the way that the Bible paints the picture at all. Um, for us today, I think it's a good reminder of what do we hold on to that is not actually scriptural, but is more cultural. Uh, and the analogy, it's a Christian author, Andrew Clavin uses it and I like it, but he calls them theological barnacles. Or in other words, like if you have a a ship and it's in the ocean. One of the things you have to do th- uh, periodically is you have to scrape the hole because barnacles get attached to it. And eventually you can get so many that it'll ruin the ship. Uh, so in other words, as we go through life, we just pick up things without even realizing it. It just kind of happens. And so the just as when you own a ship, you have to scrape the hole for the barnacles. For us with our faith, it's important to take stock of, okay, well, what are the things that I believe because they're just kind of cultural things that I believe? What are things that I've picked up as I live that aren't, that don't necessarily have their root in scripture. They're just kind of things that I want to believe. And it's important to remember to constantly do the work of trying to scrape those things off and hold true to the thing that God would actually tell us in his word. I just want dramatic, pause just a nice poignant pause. <laughs> just for the Yeah. I love it. I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. So, uh, I think for me, as I'm, as I reflect on this week's reading, um, it's just the work that Jesus has been doing to prepare um, his disciples for what's coming and not just his death and resurrection, but following Jesus is not easy. Um, and and I, I was I was reminded of this yesterday when we were, we have Wednesday night prayer. Uh, if you're part of the Grove Church, I would encourage you to come out and be a part of prayer every Wednesday night from 6.30, 7.30. Shameless plug, but I was sitting there last night just in prayer as, we're, as people are, were going around and praying. Uh, and just for me, the challenge of, of, I just, I, I want to pray and, and want to fight against any kind of spiritual apathy or spiritual ignorance. Um, I want to live in the, in the fullness of the gospel and the power of God. Um, and, and so there's just moments where, you know, Jesus' frustration for you wicked and, and perverse generation, how long must I be with you? Um, you? You see these powerful moments where Jesus is reminding his followers, reminding those closest to him about um, the sheer challenge of following him, of laying, picking up our cross, denying ourselves, laying our lives down. Um, and it's just a reminder, like this, this call that God is, is, is giving us and has, 
this inclusion into into God's family because of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension um, and sending of the Holy Spirit is not it's not an easy one, but is the most fulfilling and rewarding part of our entire beings. And so I think it's important to remember as we're reading through the Gospels, Jesus is doing everything he can to prepare his followers for the hardships that are going to exist, for the reality of the world that is at war against him. And because we bear his name is against us. And it's not for the faint of heart, but there is hope and there's joy and there's peace and there's courage and there's boldness in this walk with Jesus because of the Holy Spirit and because of what Christ has accomplished and because Christ won and we're part of that winning team. And so I think it's important as a follower of Christ just to remember it's it's to take it seriously and to, and to follow faithfully with Jesus. And so that that's what I've been wrestling with this week as I've read through uh, this passage and these these chapters of, of the reading plan. So yeah. Great point. All right, well, we did have a question come in this week. We actually had a few, so we're going to space them out over a few weeks, but uh, we're going to answer one of them right now. Okay, it says, it has always bothered me in the Bible, especially the gospel stories of events that happened to someone when they were alone. Take Jesus in the wilderness. It was Jesus and the devil, and yet it appears in more than one gospel. I know it is inspired by God, but who told them this is what happened? If you read other parts of the gospel, Jesus doesn't strike me as the person who would brag about what he did. I'm sure I'm not alone in wondering, but how did Matthew and Luke find out? Was it one of the angels who, behold, came and ministered to him? Uh, great, great question. Yeah, I like it. Uh, who knows? <laughs> so that's kind of, that's the short the end. That's the short answer. Uh, okay. So there's a few things and I thought this was a good, it's a good way to talk about like, what do we mean when we say inspired word of God? Um, I think some, t- some people take that to mean the Holy Spirit just possessed the biblical authors. And then all of a sudden they wrote down exactly what the Holy Spirit would say. And then it was, and then it was done. Um, that's not what I think is, is meant by these passages in scripture. Yeah. So the big one is second Timothy. Yeah. Second Timothy three sixteen. 16, uh, all scripture is God breathed and, and useful for teaching. So in other words, what it's saying is that all scripture that we have, what we consider as scripture, um, God is, is, is breathed out from the voice of God. It's, and you can kind of see it as similar to when Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples and he tells them, don't be afraid for it is the word of, it is God speaking through you. Um, I don't think what he's saying in that moment is that when the disciples preached the good news, they all of a sudden lost consciousness and then God spoke through them. And then after they were done, they kind of came back. I think what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is empowering them for ministry. And so I think the way I would describe the God, God inspired is that the Holy Spirit empowered the biblical authors specifically for the work that they were accomplishing. Um, for the specific example of, and things that happen when they're alone, for the specific example of what happens what happened with Jesus' temptation? Uh, I don't think it's a stretch by any means that Jesus just told them <laughs> that that's what happened. Like as because remember, the the gospels are fairly short in terms of how like you can read through a gospel and not and not have it take all that much effort. They're not incredibly long books. Um, you remember that this they're covering about a three year period. So the disciples who are with Jesus are with him for three years. The gospels certainly do not con- do not contain every record of everything that happened within those three years. Yeah. Um, just as John makes it clear at the end of his gospel that they don't even contain all the miracles that Jesus did. <laughs> like it's and you can see that because. The synoptic gospels are kind of recording. It seems like what they're doing is recording the big hitters. And then John is intentionally coming in behind him and filling in. Like, here's a bunch more that happened just Mm -hmm. so we have like a record of a few of these. But even then at the end of his, he says, yeah, we don't even have, we're not listing them all. It would take way too long to even do that. Um, 
so if, if you're asking how did we how did we get the gospel accounts of what Jesus did in the wilderness, I think he told them, and I think he told them because it, he knew it was important to be recorded in scripture, and it's important to sh- yeah. and, and because he shows them that uh, we can rebuke the temptation of Satan with scripture, with the word of God, even when it fe- even when Satan is using the word of God twisted and bring it back, we can refute it with the yeah. truth. So I think that story is very much worth telling. I don't think it's Jesus bragging. I also don't think Jesus can brag because he's perfect and sinless. You know what I mean? But that's a whole not- that gets into a whole nother thing. Um, <laughs> I love it. So what I would, yeah, what I would say is there, there's that. It also could very much be moments where the Holy Spirit is revealing truth to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and whether that's a Paul, like Jesus straight up blinding him and like, here's, yeah, here's what happened. Uh, we see in revelation, right? How does, how does John write the book of revelation is through visions and things like that. And then the books of the prophets, that's what happens, right? Is they're given, they're given visions and they record down the visions of what happens in those moments. Um, but I think honestly, the simplest answer is that Jesus told his disciples a lot of these things also, and this, sorry, this is the last thing. Um, they're probably the, the gospels are probably not the first thing that was ever written down about what Jesus did. Um, it, they're probably collections of things that were written down. So like, like for instance, some of the stories, it it would make sense that maybe Peter writes a letter at some point just to someone and says, oh yeah, it reminds me of when Jesus did this or, or like, you know what I mean? So like th- they can be using um, those stories from earlier and adding them into the gospels, collecting those things as well. They certainly would have had oral traditions and, yeah. and traditions is even a strong word because it's, it's, is it a tradition for something that happened like a couple of years ago? Um, but they, they would have had stories that passed around. The, the apostles were not going around just saying like, Hey, Jesus rose again. That was it. No, they would have been telling stories about what Jesus did. They would have been telling things to be yeah. true. The gospels are a recording of all those things, but it's not as if Jesus rises we don't talk about anything about the life of Christ and then we write the gospels like 20, 30 years later. No, this, this is essentially, it would have been ramping up to that moment. So I don't think there, when we're talking about the inspiration of the gospel writers, I don't think we need to think of it as they sat down in a room and then had a a mind dump of here's all of the truth. I think this would have been things that they were aware of. These would have been stories they were sharing. These would have been things that they'd even written down previously. And the Holy Spirit was empowering them to compile all of those things to create accurate accounts of, of the life and ministry of Jesus. Yeah. And I, I mean, all, all that is true. All that is good stuff. But I think here's the, here's the boat that I, I find myself in as well is we can't read the gospels and expect that it's, it's all that it, there is about Jesus' life and history and ministry on, on the face of the earth. He lived for 33 and a half years. We have three gospels that cover three and a half years. And then a little bit of his life prior to as a child. That was it. Um, so it's not a full exhaustive list of everything that's happened. I, I would also agree. So I would say, first off, we got to caution ourselves against viewing it as the the only things that we have and only things that happened with Jesus on the face of the earth. I, I, would, I would actually agree with you 100%. I think these are things that Jesus shared freely with his, his disciples, he he shared life with them. And you also got to remember, so that was the second thing, I think Jesus shared freely. I think the third thing is you got to remember that the the gospel writers, when you were talking about just the different things, that these this would be a ramping up thing. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, in, they're intentionally writing to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. There's a moment and there's, a, there's an intentionality and a method to their writing, their authorship. And, and so there's purpose behind what they're writing to validate the claims and the truth of who Jesus is as the Messiah. So they're, they're reflecting on 
their their walk with Jesus. They're reflecting on their time with Jesus. So all of these stories are things that have been passed on that they either saw firsthand or Jesus shared with them as well. But I would also say like, and we get this in John, and I was I looked this up, John 14, uh, 25 to 26. We haven't covered it yet in the reading plan, obviously, but it says, I've spoken these things to you. These are the words of Jesus referring to his disciples to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So there's conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples, teaching them, training them, explaining to them. A disciple is this, it carries the word, the meaning of the word is to be taught or to train. Jesus is teaching those closest to him what it means to live according to the new kingdom, according to the gospel, according to the truth of, of God's law and his word and what it means to live that out today as a redeemed people. And so Jesus is teaching. And so while we may not have his lesson plan, so to speak, we have the life and the testimony of, of the of the accounts. And so it, it's it's not it's not hard to arise at the case that they Jesus taught them about how to handle the attack of the enemy, how to handle temptation and using the temptation of the devil with him in the wilderness. Like so that so it is it is a combination of all the above plus on top of that Jesus says when I go away you'll have the counselor the holy spirit will come and teach you and remind you so it's not just teaching them in essence filling in some of the gaps but the holy spirit's job is also to remind the 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 disciples and us today of everything Jesus has taught um and and teach them new things and so there is this it, it's not a far stretch to say not only is scripture inspired by god but Jesus taught intentionally his disciples, those who are writing scripture with the purpose of, of, of resourcing us today with the truth and the methods and the, the validation of the Jesus who he says he is and what we can extrapolate from his life as he walked this earth as a, as a, a human and lived sinlessly. And so, so I think it's, it's kind of a, a merger of all those things, but I do think scripture reminds us that Jesus is the one who taught us and the Holy Spirit also teaches us things and reminds us of what Jesus taught us too. So Great question. I no, think it's a really point. good question. Well, yeah, it's an important thing to it's important thing to think of because I think that's another one of those theological barnacle things where we can just kind of repeat, uh, yeah, all scripture is inspired by God, but not actually think through. Well, what does that mean? Like, how's that? When you know what I mean? Actually think through. Actually think through that lens. We just kind of take it as a whatever we might think off the top of our heads. So great thing to think about. Uh, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.